Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello, welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we have Richard Capriola here, and Richard is an author. He wrote a book that I don't think I need any part of because I know everything I need to know. Trust me, at least that's what I thought at one point in time. Turns out I was wrong. <laughs> very wrong. <laughs> very, very wrong because he has a book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. And as anyone involved in foster care or adoption knows, kids who've been through the foster care system are very, very, very likely to have been exposed to adult drug use along the way. Kids who are, who grow up in those homes are much more likely to experiment with drugs and alcohol and all those sorts of things. And as much as you think that you can love all the problems right out of them, eventually one day you turn around and you get a phone call that says, "Hey, man, I wanted to, I wanted to let you know that your son's selling some stuff. He just tried to sell something to somebody, and and I, I found out about it. And I wanted to let you know. That's how I found out." And we're not talking about a dime bag either. And I was like, oh, dear God, what do we do with this? Like, all of a sudden, we were thrown in the deep end of the pool. And we thought we knew what we was dealing with because we dealt with a little bit of pot use with the kid before. And and all of a sudden, we found out how little we knew. And that's when I realized that I need a guy like Richard Capriola in my life to explain this stuff to me before I find out my kid was trying to sell some stuff. And we had no clue. We hadn't, I mean, did you have any idea? No. I mean, I thought maybe he might be, you know, on a weekends out with a buddy, maybe smoking some pot here or there once in a while. Nothing on the line of not just heavy use, but dealing as well. So, Richard, <laughs> how are you doing today, man? Oh, thank you, Jason and Amanda. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this important issue because I think many parents are in the same situation that you guys were in. Um, you know, I I would sit across from parents many times and go through their child's history of using a substance and give them the diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And many times they would look across at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would say something like, well, I sort of thought something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. So after I left Menninger Clinic, uh, which I, where I worked for over a decade with both teenagers and, and adults, um, I decided to put this resource together because I wanted parents to have the basic information uh, about adolescent substance abuse so that they felt better prepared, better educated, more knowledgeable, and, and, and less afraid of, of what can be a very, very um, upsetting uh, time in their lives. Oh, absolutely. Talk about upsetting when, when you get that <laughs> phone call or you find out when you wake up at 10 o'clock at night and your bedroom reeks of pot because your son's an idiot and doesn't think it makes any sense that the cold air return vent in his room is going <laughs> to suck something right through the house. And he's surprised that I know about it. I mean, come on, man. Like the whole house is smoked up and that was crazy. Like that, that's been a, a, a fight we've had to fight. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a problem. I mean, first off, teens are stupid. 
in case any parents were out there were wondering <laughs> if you were a teenager when you were a teenager i promise you were stupid too my dad has affirmed <laughs> that in the past to me that i was a stupid teenager but as stupid as they are sometimes by the time you start to realize just how dumb they are it, it's it seems like it's too late so and richard i know you said you've been working with with kids for years on this what's kind of your background in all this you know wh where did you step into the substance abuse problem and where is it taking you in life well i actually had a long career in education as a uh, school administrator in illinois for over 30 years um, and towards the end of that tenure i began moving into mental health i worked at a at a regional mental health crisis center uh, and I noticed that uh, a lot of the people who were coming to the crisis center from the emergency rooms had a mental health issue, but also had a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois and, uh, and, and got a master's degree in addictions counseling. And after a while, I uh, accepted a position at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large um, uh, psychiatric hospital serving both adolescents and adults. And I was hired to be an addictions counselor at Menninger Clinic. And I worked there for over a decade treating both adolescents and adults diagnosed with uh, mental health, uh, psychiatric, and substance use disorders. And, and, and in working with so many adolescents and their families, that's where my passion really came from to, to help parents and to give them the resor resources that I have in my book. So I set about after I retired to write this book and I wanted to keep it short. It's only about 100 pages. I didn't want to load it down with a lot of scientific jargon and a lot of research. I wanted it to be user friendly so that a parent could read this book in a short period of time, keep it as a resource and feel that they have the information and the knowledge to not only better understand adolescent uh, substance abuse, but also how it's different than adult addiction and what resources and tests you should get um, and, and what help you may need for not only your child, but yourself. Well, I will tell our listeners that you are correct. It's, it's not a very long book. It only took me a couple of days to read. It's very user friendly. And I thought I knew quite a bit about drugs. We've had several kids. It's I grew up in a drug home. You know, I, I thought I knew a decent amount about addiction. And the book was very enlightening. Well, thank you. I appreciate that feedback because that, that just reinforces what I hoped I was going to accomplish with it. So thank you. Thank you for that feedback. I also have to tell you one other thing. I don't think you're doing retirement right if you're still, <laughs> if you're still working, but I'm glad you're not. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad you're not. But I have this idea of retirement that involves like a lazy boy. I've got one of those too. <laughs> I spend I spend more than my share of, of, of time in it, but uh, uh, the pandemic has sort of isolated me here. Um, I'm just outside of Houston, Texas. And uh, unfortunately, because of this pandemic, like so many other people, we've been sort of locked down. My wife and I haven't been able to, to travel as much as we would have liked to, but uh, hopefully that's changing now. Yeah, it seems to be changing some in our neck of the woods. And Texas, I know, has a kind of a, a different view on most things like that. So I'm certain it's it's. A, and you got plenty of places to travel in Texas. I've been there. That's a big place. It 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 is a big state. Uh, it's uh, it's amazing how large it is and how many different places there are and how how spread out everything is. But uh, uh, but hopefully we'll we'll get back to doing some of that soon. Hopefully, hopefully. Oh, yeah. Well, let's just dive in here. Where do parents start with their kids? 
Well, hopefully they start at a very early age, uh, preteen years in developing that foundation of trust. And they, they, they develop um, some really good listening skills that every parent can learn and every parent can practice. You know, uh, when we talk to people, we're, we're pretty good at, at hearing the words that they say, but we're not so good sometimes at listening to the feelings that are behind the words. So I encourage parents, regardless of the age of, of, of their child, to really work on and develop that skill so that when you're talking to your child, you're not just hearing their words, you're hear, hearing the feelings behind those words, and you're able to reflect those back to the child. When you can do that, the child is most more likely to trust you and to believe that you really are in tune with not only what they're saying, but what they're feeling. Yeah, that feeling piece is a difficult thing for a lot of us guys, right? I mean, that that's something that I, I know that I didn't pick up a lot as a kid. And as an adult, I've done an amazing job of just propagating that problem. I can see that in my own kids in a lot of ways. And I've been slowly trying to figure out how to work better on that. But when, when you don't pick up the feelings, you know, when you, you're not picking up what they're, what they're saying with their emotions, with everything other than the words, you know, what, what are you doing there that, that's causing those problems? You're not affirming them. You know, you're, you're, you're not affirming the fact that, that, that they have some feelings that may very well be driving their substance use. Um, you know, many of the teenagers that I worked with, um, when I asked them to help me understand why they were using a drug like marijuana, you know, the, the answer that came back was it helps me with my anxiety. Um, so if you just focus on the drug and you don't get an understanding of why the child is using a substance, you may very well be missing an underlying issue that needs to be treated as well. If you just treat the marijuana use and you don't treat the anxiety, chances are that the child's going to relapse very quickly uh, and, and begin using more of the drug or move on to other drugs. Okay. Well, I think I can give a great example of the wrong way to handle that um, because I did. When one of my kids was, when, when we found out he was using, using uh, a lot of marijuana, actually, mm -hmm. I don't know how, how deep, he, I don't think he was that deep in, honestly. I think he, he'd been, he was a few months into having you mess with it with his friends. And when we found out, basically, we ended up having to like schedule something of an intervention with a couple other families. And I, we ended up having to do that at the exact same point when my grandmother was, was laying in a nursing home passing away. And so as you might imagine, as much as I'm terrible at expressing emotions, I had plenty of that one anger emotion that was coming up in me at that point in time. And so it was a lot of, you know, raised fist. If you do this again, I will, you know, you know, this is going to be your life is going to be miserable. I'm going to this, I'm going to that. And I don't think I need to tell you, but that was not terribly effective. Not terribly effective, but very understandable. I think that is a common reaction that parents have when they discover that their child is using a substance. Often, often we begin to feel angry, we begin to feel betrayed, but but we also feel very scared, and our and our we're almost built in a way that we want to fix this problem, and and the way that we react to fixing it is is to threaten, is to is to you know come down fairly hard. Um, so so I think that's a common response 
um, that, that, that a lot of us will have. But we need to understand that in most cases, that does not work out very well. Um, so that might be your initial reaction. Uh, maybe the first time or the second time you talk to the child, that might be very well how you act. But hopefully, as you begin to have more conversations, that, that anger and that fear sort of turns itself down and, and you begin, begin to calm down so that you can approach the situation in a, in a little different way and begin to try and have a conversation where you're focusing on trying to learn what's motivating the child to, to use this substance. Yeah, that would have been helpful to know back then. <laughs> we, we, we maneuvered through it with that one. He's, he's done grown up and been off to the army and got married and finished his time in the army and, and living a successful life. So fortunately it didn't, the hit that one didn't like ruin his world, but you know, as a foster family, one of the things that a lot of our listeners are going to know is that some of these kids come to your house and you don't know their background. You don't know if they've been using for for six months or a year, you don't know what they've been exposed to. You know, we have one kid who, um, we knew him ahead of time. We, we knew the family. And we also found out after he came into care that he tested at one year old positive for weed, Coke, heroin, meth, and oxys at one. Now, obviously he doesn't have the, the, the addiction issue going on on. It's not his responsibility. He's not the one doing it, but he's got that in his, in his body. Now it's in his brain at one year old, do you have any idea how that affects some of these, you know, how that, that will affect his teen years? Cause that's one of those big question marks. We still have looming in front of us as we go, huh, what are we going to have to deal with here in a few more years? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think the fact that you understand the, the, the child's history and the child's background, uh, the child's vulnerabilities and risk, I think puts you in a situation where you are better prepared to be able to deal with this and, and, and to begin to build that, that environment, which will substantially reduce the risk that that child will go on and, and get into other drugs. So I think the fact that you have that background, you have that information, you know what, what the past has been put you in a position now where yes that child may be more vulnerable but when you know a child is more vulnerable you can construct a protective environment that recognizes that vulnerability hey there foster care nation we'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support if you could share an episode with people friends in a group with family anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. And what does that protective environment look like for him and for us as parents? I, I think, you know, how old is he now? Seven. Seven. Yeah. Sorry. They change every year. So I lose track. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think he's right at the, at the preteen age where um, you could start to begin to develop that communication with that child that develops that trust over time to, to that non-judgmental trust where that eventually you'll be able to have these type of discussions on alcohol abuse and drug abuse and, and, and why it's so important for that child and any child to protect 
protect their developing brain, to educate children about the fact that they need to protect their brain. It's very vulnerable in adolescence because the brain is still developing. You know, one of the things that I found um, in working with teenagers is there is something that captures their attention. It didn't do me any good to tell them marijuana is illegal or alcohol is illegal, or if you continue to use, you, your grades might drop, you might not graduate, you might not get to college, you might not get a job. They didn't believe any of that. But what did capture their attention was the neuroscience. They were very interested in learning about their brain and how these substances like marijuana interact, interact with the brain. So that is something that I think parents need to pick up on. If you want to capture your child's attention, do it through education and through science and through the neuroscience. They're more likely to be interested in that than you to tell them it's illegal. Because quite frankly, they don't care about that. But what they are interested in is learning about things like how their brain works, how their brain develops, and how these substances can negatively affect their ability to, to, to perform. You know, marijuana, uh, I, I had kids that were teenagers that were smoking a, a boatload of marijuana. And when the psychological test came back, the processing speed in their brain was below average, their short-term memory was impaired, and their motivation was curtailed. So, you know, these drugs do affect the brain, but I think if you want a route to capture their interest, it's more likely to be in that neuroscience approach. Well, that's interesting because I didn't know teenagers had brains. <laughs> I thought they left for a couple of years, but no. well, sometimes, sometimes when you look at their behavior, you begin to wonder, is there a brain actually inside there? <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the, the way our brains develop is that, you know, our brains develop from the back to the front. So the last part of the brain that gets developed around age 24 or 25 is that prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for higher order thinking and making decisions. So it's not unusual that they're, they're acting on the, on the basis of impulsivity absolutely oh yeah and and we deal with with children with a, a lot of trauma yeah you know, and there's a lot of emotion and feelings and, and it's raw yeah and then and very impulsive yes and and it's interesting that you bring that up because um in my book, I point out the need for a comprehensive assessment. Uh, you can't just look at addiction. You can't just look at uh, uh, an addictions assessment. You need that comprehensive assessment because in, in, in some cases, certainly not in all cases, but in some cases, there is an underlying psychological issue that's driving that child to use a substance. It might very well be trauma from their past. It might be some type of an abuse that they were subject to in the past. Or it might be an emotional issue like anxiety or depression or, or an accompanying eating disorder or self-injury. So it's really important to get these comprehensive tests done so that as a parent, you have a, a, a comprehensive picture of what's going on, not just the drugs, but everything that's going on. Yeah, we've seen almost all of those except for eating disorders at this point. Yeah. And God, that's not a challenge. That's not a challenge. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will say one thing though, you say challenges, but challenges as a parent in this day and age, you know, right now we do have a teenager who is getting himself in some trouble and he is using marijuana. 
And at this day and age where we're located at in Missouri, we're having a real hard time finding resources to help a child that is only doing marijuana. Yeah, that's sad because, um, you know, whether it's marijuana or any other illicit drug, you know, these kids need help and and they need an intervention of some sort and they need treatment of some sort. And if you're located in an area where that treatment is very sparse, I think that makes it much more difficult to to, to deal with this issue. Um, and, And I can't think of anything that puts a parent in a more vulnerable situation than knowing there's a problem but not having accesses or resources to get help to solve that problem. Oh, absolutely. It's very frustrating because, you know, we've, we've called place, place after place after place. And because it's just marijuana and it's becoming legal everywhere, people are not treating it as an issue anymore. And that's very scary. And it's very scary for us as parents, like you said, parents that are trying to do something to help their children and cannot get the resources. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it may be that at that point, the, the the resource that you have is some type of counseling, either through the school or the mental health system, but some type of intervention, uh, you know, that it, that at least opens up the counseling approach for that child. Yeah, we're we're actually looking at some school based uh, therapy. Um, we're gonna that all came kind of a, around as an access point at, right at the end of the school year. So we'll see how that works out next year. But yeah. it, it's definitely a challenge for parents to to look at and realize, you know. But I also wanted to kind of go back a little bit because as foster parents, you know, we get kids who show up at our house sometimes, and you do not have that bond with them. You don't have that trust with them. And sometimes, I mean, depends on your locale. We haven't had it too bad here, but sometimes you might have a kid who's been in 12 homes in the last two years and they show up at your house. And so you don't have that. You Not only do you not have the, the connection with them, they have this idea that there's no connection to be had anywhere they go for good reason, you know, no fault of their own, but, but having that, that connection with them is really difficult because they don't believe it's there. So where do you go when you can't have that, 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 real communication with them. That is a very unique challenge that I think foster parents have that perhaps other parents do not have because you're taking in a child that may very well walk through the door who uh, is going to walk in, as you say, uh, and not have any trust really in what what to know or not know whether they're going to be here today and gone next week or gone next month, not knowing if you're going to eventually get tired of them and reject them. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that, that it has to begin with building that trust. And that's going to take patience and that's going to take time. But it is so important that, that, you know, that, that that trust be developed. Your challenge might be a little bit more dif- difficult because the child is coming in with a notion to, to not trust you and is going to try and feel you out and, and take some time. So it might take might take a little bit of, of time, but 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 it's an investment. It's an investment in that child. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to, as you guys know, and, but 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 it has to begin with number one, making the child feel comfortable feeling accepted and feeling trusted. 
Um, you know, uh, when, when we ask kids, you know, what is it that keeps you from talking to your parents uh, about um, things that are bothering you, the number one answer that comes back is a fear of being judged. So many of these kids actually fear being judged by their parents. They want that trust. They, they, they want that approval, but they're not sure that it's going to be there. So as, as foster parents, I think your challenge, <clears throat> your challenge is much more difficult because many times, as you say, the child walks through the door immediately not trusting you, immediately being suspicious. And you have to, you have to work with the understanding that that's what you've, that's what you've got to deal with. Well, you, you said something there that I think is interesting as well. Um, that judgment piece, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's huge in every human that I've talked to. That it just, it's just a huge part of, of what we deal with. Now, and here's where I'm going to kind of slip off the rails of the crazy train a little bit because I grew up in a church that, um, to my recollection of the way they, they handled their idea of religion, um, judgment was almost the core value. I, not that it should be, not that they said it out loud, but it, it just really was. It was part of that that world. And do you do you see a lot of these issues that fly under the radar in families who can't believe it because you know they grew up in church, they, you know, and they they have all this, but still, is, it's showing up in their families as well, even though they don't see it. And then it's harder to to notice because you expect it not to be there. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of preconditions, a lot of judgments that 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 come into the entire system. <clears throat> you know, parents parents take their their background and their history, uh, and that plays an important uh, function in terms of how they're going to deal with this issue, how they're going to react to it. Um, so so it's it's. It's, it's not a simple equation. It's, it's often very complicated by the parents' history and the family that they grew up in and, and, in, and, and the society that they grew in and their religious influences and their ethnic influences. So, you know, every situation is different, but there are so many complicating factors that there isn't just any general rule that, that applies to everybody. You know, I think what worked really well for me was my father was a cop and mm. also allergic to marijuana. And so if somebody's, if you smoked or you were standing by your friend and they smoked a joint an hour ago and he pulled you over for speeding, he'd have an immediate allergic reaction and he'd know what it was. And he'd ask you who'd been smoking. Mm-hmm. So as a young man, I was really well versed in the idea. If I come home and tried smoking weed, I was going to cease to exist pretty soon <laughs> because he was of that generation that said, look, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world and make another one that looks just like you. And no one will ever know, boy. And I'm pretty sure he was serious. I'll make an impression on you. Yeah. <laughs> but and for me, that that really did work for me. I was one of those kids that 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 listened, you know, for for that and a handful of other reasons. But that does not seem to be the you know, that that idea is not an idea that works in today's society pretty much. No. Um, that generally will not work well. Um, you know, kids will react in a negative way to threats, um, and 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 that forces them to go underground and to become even more secretive. And they're already very cle- clever at hiding these these things. So I think that approach just forces kids to become more secretive uh, and and more determined in some some respects. Uh, yeah, that that's been our experience for sure. And I know that I know that weed is probably you know weed or and or alcohol, but probably weed today is the most prevalent drug that kids are using. Have you seen any uptick in in some of the other drugs? Yes, um, uh, alcohol and marijuana are still the most popular drugs. 
that are substances that teenagers are, uh, are, are attracted to. That's been true for a long, long time. Uh, there is some use of illicit substances, the hardcore drugs, but it generally is less than 5% of, say, seniors in high school. Uh, but what we have noticed in the last few years uh, that is rather alarming is a substantial increase in vaping, vaping substances like nicotine and marijuana. There has been a substantial increase in adolescent who are turning to vaping. Uh, for example, three years ago, the, the percentage of high school seniors that were vaping nicotine was 18%. Today, it's 34%. The percentage of high school seniors three years ago that were vaping marijuana was 9%. Today, it's 22%. So, you know, this vaping of substances, whether it's uh, marijuana or nicotine, or flavored uh, ingredients has become really popular among these kids because it's easy to disguise. Some of the instruments that they're using are, are many parents wouldn't even recognize them. Some of them look like USB drives. Um, but, but that's the big change that we've seen in the last few years, kids turning more and more to vaping. Cigarette smoking is at an all-time low, but kids have moved away from smoking cigarettes and cigars to vaping nicotine, which means they're getting higher concentrations of nicotine than what they would get in tobacco. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. Oh, yeah. And in full disclosure, I that that's my world. I, I've given up almost all my vices, but I do use the, the vape device for nicotine. But I know that we have found Delta 8 cartridge um, in our house and went, huh, what's that? Um you know, are you familiar with the Delta H cartridges? Uh, no, I'm not. Delta eight is one of the newer strains of marijuana that is apparently less detectable, I think. And okay. you, you can, they have, well, you can buy it in gas stations. Yeah. It's legal. Anybody can buy it as long as you're over 18. Yeah. Well, it, it's a, it's a different strain. I know 21 in Missouri. Yeah. Now. yeah they change ages to 21, but, um, but it, it's a strain that's not considered the same. As, I don't it's know. Still, it's still the THC. It's just a different amount. It's something that they can legally sell. And it will still cause you to fail a drug test. It mm -hmm. still okay. gives you a high. Um, but they look just like vape cartridges. So parents don't even know. You know, they may think that their child's just vaping, you know, and nicotine, but they're getting high. But it's marijuana. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's no doubt that this uh, this vaping uh, among the adolescent population is is has become a serious issue. And like I say, the the percentage of of kids, percentage of high school seniors that have turned to vaping in the last three years has just has just grown um, at, at very high levels. Um, so it, it is a concern. Um, and I think I think parents, for the most part, are unaware of it. You know, it's something we were terribly unaware of, of what was going on with it. And, you know, we, we were kind of thrown in the deep end of it because 
I knew about the nicotine side of stuff, but I had no idea that there was so many options to vape marijuana these days. And I know talking to some of our school administrators, that's become a big problem. You know, kids go to the, to the boys room and you can, uh, you, you can usually get away with it because it doesn't have near the odor. It doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's much more hideable. Yes. And, and that's, and I think that appeals to a lot of teenagers, the fact that it is hideable, not detectable as easily. And it, and it can be used very quickly. Like you say, they just go off to the boys room and, or, or to the gym locker room or somewhere and take a few hits and, you know, they're done. What, what age, you know, it used to be, you know, when we were kids, high schoolers, but now it it seems like the younger kids, middle schoolers, 10 and 12. And, you know, what's our age range that parents should really start being concerned? I would start to be concerned uh, at, at very, very young ages, um, you know, preteen. Uh, we tend to see um, uh, pre-teenagers, kids as young as eight and nine and 10 years old, if they're getting into substances, they're more likely to get into uh, what's called inhalants which are common household products that you might have around the house. Uh, you know, they have an odor to them. They will get a, a, a very rapid high. Some of these can be very toxic. Um, you know, they could be paint thinner. They could be paint. They could be glue sticks. Um, um, and, and, and kids will, will learn about this and then they'll try it. And, and the issue with that is it gives them a very high, a very high uh, concentration. It, give, it gets them high real quick, but it doesn't last very long so they tend to repeat it over and over and over again and because their brains are less developed than a 15 or a 16 or 17 year old it can become really very toxic so um, there is no one age at which i would say okay you need you need to be starting to get concerned i would be concerned at uh, um, at a very at a very young age um, and, and that's why knowing about this information, being educated on it, whether your child is five, six or seven, uh, there is there is no ideal time to start. I would say start as early as you can. OK, yeah, I see. I, I see in your book here, you know, you, you've got a whole list of the different types of drugs. Uh, yeah. And I mean, quite frankly, I would look at this as a parent five, 10 years ago. And be like, yeah, I don't have to worry about hallucinogenics. That's not a thing. No, actually, um, that has been a thing. Um, the inhalants, I, what is it? I have some right here in my desk drawers, dust off. And come to find out, apparently, that was something that was being used by a lot of kids. Because basically, it just it deprives your lungs of air. It puts a different chemical in there. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be just compressed air. So they assume it's perfectly safe for them. And there was there for a little while, there was kids dying from yeah. using compressed air. Yeah. And I think most parents are, are, are completely unaware of this. Uh, how many parents have, you know, the, these inhalant substances around the house? Some of them are cleaning, you know, solvents and things like that that we all have. Um, the other thing is how many parents have uh, over-the-counter and prescribed drugs in their medicine cabinet? And my advice is if you have any substances, whether it's prescribed or unprescribed, uh, or if you have alcohol, you need to secure those as a parent, especially when your child gets into those teenage years because believe me I, these kids are very clever at raiding the medicine cabinet and taking a portion of the drugs that are there yeah I, and i found out years later because my oldest son is in his mid-20s now and and grown up and 
and married and been through the military and has a real career now. And he's told me a few of the stories. Um, you know, if I had a wine bottle in the refrigerator, you know, he, he realized that if he put water in, in there after he <laughs> drank some of it, that, that I would be able to tell because the, the color would change and he'd take Kool-Aid and put a red Kool-Aid in a red wine to fill it up. Cause it has flavor and it has color. I was <laughs> like, dang, yeah, I didn't think you were that. Like at that age, I don't think you were smart enough. To, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I had, I, I had one patient who, um, uh, would raid his, uh, his, his parents' medicine cabinet, but, but he would go for the gin or the vodka because it was clear liquid and he would take what he wanted and then just replace it with water. And that went on a while before the parents finally caught on. So they're very clever at how they can, uh, how they can use this stuff. Absolutely. Um, now you, you talk about process disorders in here a little yeah. bit. Can you, can you talk about that? Yes. Um, you know, we have what we call chemical disorders, and that's the alcohol and the drugs. We have process disorders, which tend to be behavioral type disorders, but they carry many of the same characteristics that a child who's using alcohol or drugs have. They become very compulsive, they can become destructive, and they can have severe consequences. Examples would be uh, a child who's developing an eating disorder. That's a process disorder. Uh, a child who is harming themselves you know, maybe cutting or burning on themselves. A child who is immersed in video gaming, um, even cell phone use now can become a compulsive uh, uh, use. So these compulsive behavioral uh, addictions carry with it many of the attributes that we find with chemical addictions. Primarily, these tend to cause a rush of dopamine in, in the child's brain. Dopamine is a pleasure chemical. When we have a rise in dopamine, we feel pleasure. Uh, so if we have go on a date, we go to a movie, whatever it is, and, and we feel a great sense of pleasure, it's because dopamine rises in the brain. Well, with, with all drugs and with many of these process disorders, they cause a huge surge of dopamine in the brain, and that gives the child the pleasurable feeling that they have. But these process addictions are important because many times they will accompany a child's chemical addiction. For example, I had one young girl who was using a lot of marijuana she was also cutting on herself. They were both ways in which she could deal with an intolerable thought or feeling or memory. So the message is if, if through a comprehensive assessment, you discover a child has a process addiction, that needs to be treated along with the chemical addiction. You can't just treat the, uh, the marijuana and not treat the self-injury, or you can't just treat the self-injury and ignore the marijuana. And usually what, what you will see is if a child is deprived of one of these coping skills, say the marijuana, the self-injury might very well increase because they rely then on the other coping skill to deal with whatever underlying issue they're dealing with. But it's important that if you suspect your child has an eating disorder or a self-harming issue, and I list the warning signs for those in my book, you need to get an assessment on that as well. You know, I have a friend of mine, we'll just call him Bob, and Bob was raising one of his relatives and uh, it was a young girl and she was going through exactly that. I mean, there was eating disorders, there was cutting, there was um, marijuana use. It was a lot of those sorts of things. And 
he talked to me about it because I know the guy. I work with him. We're friends. And I would try and give him help and uh, and then come to find out his his daughter actually they believe was uh was suffering with reactive attachment disorder. And I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Um but that's that's a rough one and turns out all the advice it gave him was really terribly unhelpful when you're dealing with a mental disorder on top of the, you know, because at a very young age, there was a reason he was raising her at a very young age. She'd, she'd experienced some pretty um, significant sexual trauma and that sort of thing, along with some abandonment from family members, all that, all that sort of thing. So she had a lot of mental stuff, a lot of trauma, and it was feeding into two or three different problems, all manifesting in different ways. And so when you begin to add those mental disorders on top of that, um, yeah, where, where do you go when you have that much stuff all at once in one kid? I saw a lot of kids like that because I worked in a psychiatric hospital. So most of the kids that I uh, came into contact with um, had as a primary diagnosis, a psychiatric disorder or an emerging psychiatric disorder, as well as a substance abuse disorder. Um, and, and that makes treatment much more complicated. Uh, and, and, and depending on the severity of the underlying mental health issue, that's what's going to drive treatment. It's not going to be the substance abuse that drives the treatment. It's going to be the underlying issue. And many of those, many of those kids, when, when the underlying issue is, is, is really very, very severe, are looking at longer-term residential treatment. This is not going to be treatment that's going to be accomplished in a few weeks or a few months. Many of these children will require longer-term residential care that could last 6 to 12 months or longer uh, because the underlying mental health issue, the psychiatric issue, is so severe that it's going to require longer-term treatment. This might be a child who, you know, has a, has a severe history of trauma. Uh, it might be a child who... Um, has been abused physically or sexually. It might be a child who is developing an emerging personality dis dis disorder. Uh, it could be a behavioral disorder. It could be an oppositional defiant disorder. It could be an emerging uh, schizophrenic disorder. These are serious diagnoses that will require longer term treatment. Yeah, you named a few of them there that terrify me. Yeah. <laughs> because we've dealt with some of them. You know, I, in many respects, I think, because I've sat in rooms where we have, where, where the treatment team has had to tell a parent that their child is not only using a drug, um, but is also developing a serious emerging personality disorder like schizophrenia uh, or perhaps oppositional defiant disorder. And, and many times that is much more alarming and scaring, scary to the parent than learning that their child has a substance abuse disorder. Because I think learning these psychiatric disorders, rightfully so, is much more scary than learning the child might be smoking marijuana or drinking alcohol. Yeah, we had one kid who was who stayed with us for a while who was uh, now mind you this is my diagnosis he he was not actually diagnosed by a psychologist and my psychology degree was printed on a um printed on a piece of of paper with a drawing of a of a house on the back of it so <laughs> so my yeah my degree is not worth a whole lot but I would say he was he was as textbook oppositional defiance disorder as you can, you could have. And that was one of the ones that was really difficult for me. So, you know, as foster parents, 
we're not trained in how to deal with all these different diagnoses or, or no. especially when you have young kids come in, I'm not prepared to, to know exactly which one they have right off the bat. You know, if, if they do have something or if it's just a kid who's trying to figure the world out. So as, right. as a foster parent, when you have these kids show up, what's your best course of action to, to begin to, to find some support for them, some help for them when, when you don't, you know, something's happening. You just don't know what. And, and, and getting the answer to that what is critical so that when you, when you be concerned about these behaviors, um, you know, it's important that you turn to the professionals to get the assessments, to get the diagnoses, and to get the treatment recommendations. And, 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 and even for parents that, that, that aren't foster parents, sometimes it's difficult to sort out, well, is this just adolescent acting out behavior? Or is this something that I should be concerned of? And, and as parents, we're we're not necessarily trained to, to know all of the differences. And that's why we rely on the professionals to do the assessments and give us the guidance. So as a foster parent, if you feel that there may be an issue here that could be rather serious, maybe it's a substance abuse issue, maybe it's a psychological issue, you need to turn to this to the professionals to do the assessments and give you the information that you need because that will be the foundation for you making the decisions that you'll have to make on treatment. And they'll give you guidance in terms of what the treatment options are too. So when you get to the point where you're really concerned and this behavior is not just something that lasts for a day or two, but sort of goes on and on and on, and you become concerned, that's the point at which you need to turn to the professionals to get the assessments and the diagnosis and the treatment plan done. And I think, you know, to all the foster parents out there, that's one of the things that's super important is that it's really easy to to back off and go, this is more than I can handle, yeah. you know, and in full disclosure, you know, Amanda and I have, have had to say that at, at one point with one particular case where we went, sorry, but this is outside of our, we cannot handle this. Yeah. You know, yeah. we had a young man who had more trauma in his life than, than what anybody ever found out. Nobody, he'd never told anybody his whole story. I could tell that much for sure. But I also know that the fact that he tried to, to buck up to Amanda was going to be his undoing because my two young, um, well, my oldest two boys, it gets so confusing when, you know, because they're seven to, to try and remember which ones, but yeah. they were just a little bit older than him and considerably larger. And as soon as he tried to buck up to their mom, they were ready to get all kinds of sideways. And I'm like, whoa, hang on. We don't, we don't need like fights and, 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 and charges and stuff. Come on, let's. Yeah. So we, we had to actually say, hey, we got to find a better place because you know, this is not a safe place for him right now because this stuff is going on. But I know that he had plenty of diagnoses to, to be found out about down the road. And it's really hard sometimes when you have a four-year-old who's acting that way to be able to, to hold on long enough to get him into the specialist to diagnose that because let's be honest, the healthcare system in America is not a terrible system. I'm not mad at it, but it can be challenging to get into those doctors sometimes. And it, takes it can be, it, it, it can be challenging. It can be frustrating. Uh, it can be time consuming. It can be expensive. It can be all of those, which unfortunately complicates our ability to give adults and children the best care that they need. And as a family and as a parent, you know, it, it can become 
you know, just tremendously frustrating. Um, but we get back to the point that you you raised earlier when as a foster parent, these kids coming into your home, you don't have the advantage of knowing an awful lot about them. You might have a little bit of history, but you're going to go on what you see and what you observe and, and your tolerance for, for being able to deal with it. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a real challenge for foster parents because um, you're, you're, you're going down a journey that you don't have a lot of information on. Oh yeah. You're a hundred percent right there. We've had so many, so many situations where they show up and you have a story that's about three lines long <laughs> and that's all you know about the kid. And, and as the case moves forward, you, you get this whole thing, you know, this whole story laid out that you go, Holy crap, this is way bigger than I ever thought it was going to be. You know, this is a big deal for this kid. You know, it's not a simple, you know, mom and dad were living in some some filth and needed a, so somebody to come in and help them understand what. Hey, this is how you this is how you you're supposed to live. Let's get this place cleaned up. And you know that that one's typically not a terrible one to to get through. But you know, I mean, when you start dealing into you know one particular young man, I'm thinking of mom was uh, I don't know that they that I ever actually heard what she was diagnosed as. I'm going to say um, somewhere between crazy and evil would be the best description for her. Because I did find out about some of the abuse that, that this young man had 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 dealt with, and it was absolutely horrific. And mom had some significant mental health issues on top of that, and dad at the time had some some substance abuse issues on top of that. And, and so this kid comes in, and literally he was, I think he was three when he showed up at my house, and he had a three word vocabulary. So learning how to deal with all that, like that, that was a big deal for us, um, and you know, he eventually was diagnosed as reactive attachment disorder, but he was fortunately, I think, I think he, we caught him at the last possible moment because he attached to my wife so deeply that that was, that, that was, I mean, I'll be real honest. He's tattooed on my, on my chest over here. Um, that, that was one of those cases that, that tore our hearts out when he left, he was just an amazing kid, but it took, it took some doing to get there. And that was difficult. Because there were so many different things about the backstory, whether or not he was exposed to any kind of substance abuse as a, as a baby, and, and then his, his abuse and his trauma that he dealt with, and all the pieces. It, it gets to be a really complicated puzzle as a, as a foster parent. And I'm certain that even as parents, when your kids don't come from foster care, there's trauma in your kid's life that you may, very well may not know about. Most abuse is not found out until well after it happened. That's right, and 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 many parents, as you say, um, don't don't know about the abuse that's there. The kids keep it to themselves. Sometimes, sometimes you uh, you see signals of it, you see indicators of it through the behavior. But you know, parents are not trained psychologists. They're 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 not experts in the field. They don't necessarily know what to look for and what not to look for. They're just observing the behavior and wondering, well, why in the heck am I seeing this behavior? Um, and and and, and and it becomes a real challenge. It becomes a challenge for parents to sort this out. Well, is this adolescent behavior? You know, I've seen this before. But the thing to pay attention to is, you know, the changes that you see in the child. You know, you know, are these changes that are temporary or are these changes that are ongoing? So my advice to parents is pay attention to the changes you see in your child. Don't assume that they're adolescent acting out. They may very well be, but they also may be indicators that there's something else going on uh, underneath the surface that, that you need to find out about. 
you know, chapters 14, 15, and 16, I think, are all about treatment for kids who are who are going through this stuff. Yeah. What's some of the, the basics of what treatment looks like for an adolescent who's who's into some of those substance abuse problems? Treatment always begins, first of all, with a comprehensive assessment, uh, which leads to a diagnosis, which leads to a treatment plan. There is no one treatment that fits every situation, every child. Every child's different. Every diagnosis is different. Every assessment is different. And, and the key to success, I think, is two things. Getting an accurate diagnosis and treatment plan, number one. And number two, having the child in treatment long enough so that it has a probability of being successful. Many times, um, you know, treatment is not long enough. Depending on the severity of the issues, um, you may be looking at treatment that, that could last a month or two, or it could last many, many months. Um, there is no one treatment that fits every kid. Um, it's all going to come down to the, the comprehensive diagnosis and the treatment plan that's recommended by professionals. Well, I, I also see another a problem that I've just, I've heard parents talking about and, and just witnessed and stuff. There's also a lot of parents that are in denial. Yeah. yeah. And even when the evidence is presented to them, they're like, no, nope, not my kid. No, nope, he was just holding that for so-and-so. That's not his, not hers. Yeah. And it's got to be pretty difficult when you have parents that are in denial to get children accurate help. It is because they, they, they live in their own world of denial, which means they don't want to accept reality, even though they're seeing the consequences of the, that use every single day. They tend to write it off. They tend to not want to believe it. Sometimes it's out of fear. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to believe that this is going on. But that's just going to complicate the, the, the ability to get treatment to that child because the, because the parent's going to live in their world of denial. Eventually, it'll bring breakthrough, but but it may it, it may break through in, in in catastrophic consequences. But the fact that the parent is in denial, doesn't want to accept the facts that are presented to them, complicates the complicates the issue um, uh, and makes it much more difficult to get help for that child and for the family itself because in those situations, it's not just the child that needs help and treatment. It may very well be the treatment that the, the entire family needs treatment too. Yeah, because one of the things that I've noticed is that there there are families and and um, entire groups of people that I've met that seem to have taken the idea that that well, here in Missouri, weed is legal, and for the listeners, that's legal in air quotes because. Weed is marijuana is now legal if you have a prescription for it. Yeah, yeah and, your med card, and it, and it has changed um, the the way that a lot of people look at it to the point where I drive for a living, and I will be on the interstate occasionally, and I'll have a car pass me, and here I am in this great big truck, and this little car goes flying past me, and holy cow, how can I smell your weed out of your car into my truck on the interstate? That's <laughs> frightening. And yeah. I'll go to certain places, you know, you go to some gas stations and, and people like the place just begins to smell the whole place smells of weed. And it's, it's this idea that weed is quote unquote legal. So it's 
more or less okay for anybody to use it or have it or own it. And, and, and I, it terrifies me the way that that is looking to, uh, to kids and changing their, their viewpoint on it. Well, I think that's, that's, that is a problem because um, we're making marijuana more and more legal for adults throughout the country. And kids have the perception that if it's okay and legal for adults, it can't be that harmful for me. The problem with that is, is, is again, the brain. Um, the adult brain is different than the adolescent brain. So uh, I don't recommend that adults use any illicit substances, um, whether it's marijuana or cocaine or methamphetamine or any drug. But when it comes to uh, marijuana, you know, kids do have this perception that if it's okay for adults, how harmful can it be? Well, it can be very harmful for your developing brain. And I think that's the, that's the component that people miss out on, that many things which might be so-called okay for adults are not okay for adolescents and can have some serious uh, consequences for that developing brain. Okay, I have to ask the dumb question now because here's here's what I've heard so many times. You know, man, God gave it to us. It's from the earth. It's God's medicine. What do you say to that one? Poison ivy is uh, from uh, the ground too, but I don't recommend people play around with that either. All right, here's some belladonna for you. <laughs> you know, so, so that argument of well, it's uh, you know, it, it it's it's just naturally growing out there doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy you know you know i i've had that that a very similar answer mine is usually um oh i just what was it uh socrates uh that that he had to drink it oh i can't remember hemlock Hemlock, that's what it was hemlock hemlock will kill you (laughs) (laughs) it was a way to kill people back in the day and i don't think it's it should be considered safe just because it came from the earth yeah, I've heard that argument too, and you know, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's and the addiction factor is another one because you know, for weed again, and weed is the most common one we see problems with. Um, but I've been told, oh, there's no addiction to it, and I'm sorry, <laughs> but I have seen it. I've seen it firsthand in in the lives of people I've known, and there's definitely an addictive factor to that that really affects a lot of people, especially young ones. Absolutely. You know, this, this idea that you cannot become addicted and that's, that's, that's not a diagnosis. We don't diagnose people as being addicts, but, but definitely it can become a, what we now call a substance use disorder that can be in the severe category, which has, you know, which complicates people, people's lives and can have disastrous consequences. Absolutely. And another one that I've seen, um, my son told me about, what was going on in high school when he was in high school. And mind you, we're in rural Missouri. We're, we're an hour or so outside of St. Louis. If, mm-hmm. if I leave my house, I'm going to find cows long before I find a high rise building. So we're in kind of a rural area, but if you went to the high school, it's a bright time and knew when and where to look like under the water fountain, you, you would, you know, you would leave your, your purchase price and stop by later to pick up, um, the your your pills uh, what what is the the one that they use um oh i'm ritalin that that's a one lot of ritalin there's another one that they use a lot but it, those sorts of of prescription drugs that kids are selling that was prescribed for them and they found that they can they can sell it in the school very easily 
Yeah, things like Ritalin, Adderall, Adderall, um, those, you know, are, are prescribed and 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 are are being abused and sold by you know by other kids, um, and that brings up the issue that you know, no matter where you live, no matter what school your child goes to, no matter how much money you make, um, all children are vulnerable to being captured by by some type of substance abuse you know there is no totally protected child um and 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 all children all children are at risk of of abusing whether it's alcohol or drugs all children are at risk and parents and foster parents need to understand that that is a risk that all children are vulnerable to absolutely because you know you can go I, and I don't care what ethnic group you go in, socioeconomic group you go into, it, it is everywhere. We have a, a worker who used to work in our small county out here who moved into a more affluent county, a much larger county. And her biggest, uh, the, the biggest difference she said she found was that now it's more commonly that she's in a house removing kids from people who have bigger, nicer houses than she could possibly ever afford yeah. jobs she's got before it tended to be more people who were who were in a lower socioeconomic stratus and and had had smaller places and that's the only difference but it's just as much abuse of of both physical abuse and drug abuse and, and all of that it's it doesn't seem to be different based on who you are where you're from and that's a good that's a good message for every parent you know don't assume that you know that your child is exempt from being vulnerable to to substance abuse that's a very dangerous perception to have as a matter of fact, money tends to make it easier for kids to get a hold of that stuff. It can. Well, and there's so much shame wrapped around all of this for parents and children. You know, that's a that's an excellent point because it it, it brings out the issue of stigma. Um, there is a stigma still associated with mental health disorders. You know, it's, it's getting better, but there still is a stigma associated with mental health issues. But the stigma with addiction and substance abuse is, is, is much more severe. We tend to look at uh, addicts, uh, people who are using drugs uh, in, a, in a much more negative way than we will for any other disease. And we've finally gotten around to seeing that addiction is a, a, a disease. Um, but, but the stigma of addiction is much more severe than it is for mental health or any other disease. And, and, and that causes society to look at uh, addicts and, and even adolescents who are using substances in a much more negative context. Than, than, than what needs to be. You know, and listeners of this podcast will have heard me say this a million times, but I'm a member of a, of a dad's group online. It's, a, um, it's based on, in, on Facebook. And so it's a place where, where guys actually talk openly about a lot of hard things because, well, quite frankly, because they do an excellent job of, uh, of, of policing that group and keeping all the, the nasty stuff that people tend to throw out at bay. And, and we, don't, we don't allow that in there. And so inside of that group, I've talked to a number of people because I'm very open about my story and the things we've been through and some of the stuff we've dealt with with our kids. And, you know, the the story of, of finding out that your kid was selling drugs, not just using, but selling. Mm -hmm. I've had a number of dads reach out to me on the side and the percentages of, of the number of people who are actually experiencing this is crazy. And in my real life, I assume those percentages probably hold about true to the same number. 
to date, I think I've had two different dads that I know. One of them is one of the kids who one of my sons, you know, is friends with his kids. So, you know, obviously I've talked with him a little bit, but only one other friend of mine who's actually said, you know, yes, this is what we're dealing with. My son was doing this. He's been doing that. You know, I found him on the road down from down the street from the house, passed out the other night when I came home, he was, he was messed up on this and actually talked about it. But for the most part, that tells me that most people are hiding it. Yes. Most adolescents are hiding it. Most adults uh, hide the fact that their child might be using a substance. Um, And I think that, that, that catches parents off guard because you know they 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 don't want to to know that their child is using a substance and then they find out well not only is the child using a substance they're out there dealing it as well you know they're they're selling it to other kids um, and that's that 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 becomes even more disturbing for the parent well and and parents just like kids they we don't want to be judged. We don't want to be called a, a bad parent. And if you admit that your child is having problems, especially with drugs, not just some mental issues, but drugs too, you're automatically, you're a bad parent. You did something wrong. Yeah. You didn't take care of your children. You didn't protect them. But for me, I, I think you're, you're a bad parent. If you don't get your children help, if you don't recognize that there's a problem and do something yeah, I, you know, I I think that's that's true. I think society does judge parents that way, unfortunately, many times. But but being a parent has the responsibility to take care of your child, and when you notice that there's a problem, you take care of it. You know, if your child broke their arm, you take care of it right away. If your child develops a a fever uh, or or develops the flu, you take care of it right away. This is no different. You know, when you do discover or you have or you have uh, suspicions that your child is using a substance or you discover that they're using a substance that's not something that you sit back and and and, and just put under the rug that's something that you need to act on immediately well maybe not immediately because your first <laughs> knee jerk reaction might be like mine you might need to first t- take about 10 deep long slow breaths and then <laughs> jump right on that reaction <laughs> yeah well your first reaction probably going to be feelings of anger feelings of hurt feelings of betrayal so you probably need to take a moment to calm down from that or a day to, to calm down from that and then try to approach it from uh, the perspective of, of wanting being curious wanting to learn you know what's what really going on and i want to say that you know my the thing one of the things i was surprised with is i i've always been very big on honesty with my kids i'm like look you tell me the truth i'm gonna tell you the truth and it's gonna hurt sometimes but the truth is always better than nothing else and when i found out and started asking questions the ability of a kid to look you right dead in the eye, your cute little wonderful angel child who is just, you know, can do no wrong. It's going to look at you and be like, no, dad, that, no, that was, that was so-and-so who got in trouble. No, that wasn't me. I, I would never do that. I would never touch that stuff. Um, they're probably lying <laughs> and you have to be able to accept that. And that, that was a hard thing for me the, the their ability to just straight up, look you dead in the eye and tell bald face lies and not even blink. 
Well, and, 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 and that's where you have to get back to being curious and, and, and wanting to understand why the behavior is that you're seeing. So if a child who says, well, hell no, I'm not smoking that marijuana. Why would you even think I would smoke marijuana? I wouldn't do that. Okay, then help me understand why I'm seeing the behaviors that I'm seeing. I don't know. I'm curious. You know, I notice that you're doing this. I notice that you're doing that. I'm curious. Help me understand why I'm seeing the behaviors that I'm seeing which caused me to be concerned that maybe you are using a substance. So the, the parent has to, has to go beyond just the kid denying it because the kid's going to deny it most likely. Now you have to focus on being curious about the behaviors you're seeing and seeing if the child will uh, eventually, maybe not right away, but eventually open up and start to talk to you about some of the reasons behind the behaviors that you're seeing. So you're seeing these behaviors you want to help. You want help in understanding why these behaviors are there. I love the the fact that you have some a good question like that to ask kids because my knee jerk question is why are you doing this? Are you stupid? And yeah. that is not a very useful question. But I like I like what you're saying. Help me understand. Yeah, I mean, and kids are like adults. Nobody likes to be told they're stupid. Nobody likes to be told that their behavior is stupid, even though it, it, it may very well be stupid. Um, I think you're much more likely to get uh, get the information that you want by taking a, a, an approach of just being curious about, help me understand why I'm seeing the behavior I'm seeing, because they can't deny the behavior that's there. Now you're, now you're wanting to know and you're wanting help in understanding why am I seeing this behavior in you? Yeah, I like that because we're not looking to to pin something on the kids and um, and make them feel like feel like I'm just here to accuse you and convict you and you know and that's yeah. that's where the judgment comes from. Yeah, th- there's no judgment. I'm just curious. I want I want you to help me understand why I'm seeing this behavior. Help me understand it. I, I'm curious. There's no judgment. There's no right or wrong. I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm curious as to why I'm seeing this behavior. That and and that may take several discussions before you get to the answer. Oh yeah, that that's that's great. I love that. Um, man, I appreciate you coming on here today and, and putting this out here because like I said, you know, Amanda and I, we, we had kids and I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but today they're handing kids out at the hospital and they're not sending them with, uh, with instruction booklets. <laughs> we thought we knew what we were doing and we didn't think we would ever have this problem. And we're actually getting like, I don't know, we should be getting some kind of certification or something at this point for the amount of experience we have. But, you know, nobody told us this. Well, it's, it's, it's great that, that you guys um, are, are putting together a podcast like this that can help other foster parents learn from the experiences that you guys have had uh, and, and to be able to share that. I think this is a tremendously valuable resource for any parent, but especially for those who are, who are foster parents that can, that can listen to these podcasts, can, 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 can understand what you guys are saying and learn from your experience. I think that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing that you're doing. Well, I, I look at it this way. God has led us through some really deep waters and we, we've been through some, some hard struggles in our, in our time. And if we make it to the other side and we don't share the lessons that we've had to learn, 
my God, how are we not wasting our, um, our wasting those yeah. hard lessons? Yeah. And, and, and you're probably, uh, you know, a blessing to every foster parent out there who is feeling the same way that you guys have felt, uh, who are looking for answers, who are questioning, you know, are they doing the right thing? It, it, what do I do next? And they have the benefit of, of listening to your programs and your experience. So I just want to congratulate you on the, on the work that you're doing and the outreach to other foster care parents. Well, thank you. And one of the things we like to do is to reach out to people who know something way more than us and give those resources out because without that, I mean, my God, this is the world of Google. All the answers are out there. <laughs> and sometimes it's hard to find the right ones. Yeah. Like my son yeah. once told me, I don't need to go to school, Dad. Google has all the answers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes. Yeah, do, well, sometimes son. they're not the right answers. <laughs> exactly. Said, yes, I do, son. They have all the answers, the right ones and the wrong ones. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes you can't tell the difference. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you guys again for inviting me to the program and for participating in the discussion. I think it's always helpful, uh, you know, when when those are who are doing the interviewing can also add their own perspectives. I think it adds a lot of value. So thank you so much. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Richard's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening.